Welcome to Outrageous Love, the podcast. Welcome to our February episode. This is our second season, almost getting to our second anniversary. So glad to be with you. Today we have a very, very special guest, somebody who is multicultural for sure. And uh, we're focusing on educrats, people who work within like state departments of education, work right in the middle of the bureaucracy, and I call them educrats, yet they are doing the work of CLR, um, fighting from within. And we're going back to the great state of New Mexico, back to the public education department. And if you've been following along, we had Mayra Vatieres last episode. No, so excited to join you in this space. I, I've been listening. Now we're going back to her office to meet one of her colleagues who I work directly with in the CLR work there in New Mexico under the public education department. And I'm going to introduce you. We call her Dr. Cad for short. I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Cad in just a moment. But first, we got to do our two things. We got to do our affirmations, as you well know. And then I'm going to give you Dr. Holly's two cents. First, tell your faces that you're happy. I just think when you push play on the podcast, you should just automatically tell your faces that you're happy because, you know, I'm going to be asking you to do that. So just just do it. Just do it on automate. Put it on automate and show your face that you are happy. This is just our way of saying that no matter what's going on, it's still going to be a good day. No matter what's going on, um, everything is going to work out. There's always, always a light at the end of the tunnel. Although it may not seem like it. So that's what telling your face that you're happy means. As I always tell folks, it doesn't literally mean that you're happy. It's just your way of saying, I can make it through this. I can get through this. Second affirmation is to give yourself some love, as we always like to call it. Like if no one else is going to love you, you got to love yourself sometimes. If no one's going to hug you, you got to hug yourself sometimes. No one's going to give you a high five. Give yourself a high five. Right. And that's that's what this affirmation is really about. We're going to keep it simple this time. Let's put it like that. We're just going to simply focus on what do you do on a regular basis, on a consistent basis that is a part of who you are, you know, like a habit or a a a, um, you know, a routine or something like that. And the reason why I'm going there is because I got inspired by this meditation topic that focused on, you know, finding the newness in the sameness. And I'm one to not like the same old routine, by the way. You know, I like variety. But this uh, this particular meditation was very inspirational in the sense that even though you do the same thing, there's a newness that comes with that same thing. So for this affirmation, I just kind of want us to go there and think about what is something that you do on a regular basis? It's a habit. It's part of your routine and um, it's just something that is is a part of who you are. And just kind of give yourself some love for consistency. Give yourself some love for constancy. Give yourself some love for, you know, no matter what's going on, this is always going to happen. Right. And it could be like a chore. It could be, you know, something that you do in terms of your hobby life or or in terms of like running every day or whatever it is. So. 
Give yourself some love for you just being consistent, whatever that is. I want you to give yourself some love, right? You know, I, I think that for this one, we're kind of the theme of our month is obviously Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. But we celebrate culture every day. Don't forget that. But I want you to, as you're thinking of giving someone else some love, why don't you reach out to someone who's of a different cultural background from you and ask them about something that they celebrate cultural that you may or may not know of to get at more the off the radar cultural celebrations or ones that we don't think about all the time. And it's really asking this person, you want to you want to show their culture some love, but you may not know what to celebrate or what to do. And, and think of the rings of culture when you reach out to the person of a different cultural background. It doesn't have to necessarily just be ethnic. Right. It could be national. It could be religion. And that fits with our theme of our guests as well. And say, you know, what it, what's something that you celebrate cultural that's off the mainstream grid? That's what I'm trying to get at. I mean, this is just a way of, uh, you know, connecting with someone along those lines and showing them some love for culture as our way of uh, kind of building off, you know, the greatness of what we do around Black History Month, but also celebrating culture in every day. So show somebody else some love by reaching out to someone that you don't know culturally and find out if there's a culture celebration that they do that's not on the mainstream grid and then let them know you're going to try to participate in that cultural celebration. It's a bit more elaborate than we do for showing love, but uh, just trying to keep it focused around the celebration of culture. All right. Speaking of culture, we want to talk to you about just culture of school. And I want to build off of what we were saying last episode about how our students come to school and nothing is wrong with them and they are fine as they are. Some people sent me to say, can you tell us a little more about the deficit perspective? And so we want to talk about the deficit perspective. You know, it comes out of research as a way of saying that something's wrong with the student, something's bad with the students. And that's the position that we start from, that the students need to be fixed. And particularly, if you go back historically, need to be fixed culturally and linguistically. So I read an article this past week about students speaking that bad language, Spanish. And in this one particular situation, the article is about, they were trying to save this school, it's a historical school in Texas, where it had the reputation of students getting slapped on a wrist with a ruler if they were speaking Spanish. So this would be an example of Spanish being seen as wrong, as bad, as negative, deemed as bad, and you could get punished for speaking your Spanish. And there, there, there are tons of examples of this, so I'm not going to go through all of them. But that is a classic example of the deficit perspective. And the deficit perspective still exists in the walls of our schools, sometimes in obvious cases, but in most times, less obvious cases. And essentially, everything that we do, once you really break it down, operates on this premise that the students have to be fixed, that there's something wrong with the kids. That, And what we're trying to do through culture responsiveness is change that narrative to there's nothing wrong with our students. They just need to be taught, right? They need to just be validated. They need to just be affirmed. They need to just be loved. So I think that in order to be a CLR educator and reflective, you really have to dig in 
and think about what are those ways that I may be supporting the deficit perspective and not necessarily be aware of it. Right. It's sort of like our notion of blooming Right. Like we don't we're not aware that we may be blooming because it's unintentional and we're not we're not intending to cause harm. But the reality is that our students are harmed when we're telling them that you're, something's wrong, something's bad, you need to be fixed. And that is the subtle, that's the subtle message. And we so easily go there, I think sometimes that we don't give it, we don't give it a second thought. So my two cents is let's keep this focus on the students are fine as they are, particularly culturally and linguistically. Let's try to catch ourselves when we are thinking in those deficit ways, that deficit perspective, right? And the answer to it is validation and affirmation. And then making sure our students have these skills, right, to be successful as they navigate, not the not the value, right? We place value on some of the things that we have for school culture as oppositional to what students are bringing from home culture as if it's better, Right. We're trying to just avoid that dynamic altogether. So I'm still kind of there. And, you know, I'm in schools. I'm working with teachers every day, basically, either virtually or in person. And so we still hear the deficit perspective come out in comments and and things that people say through their questions. And I have to I have to check them and say, wait a minute. Right. We have to we have to look at the position that we're starting from because it could um, control where we land because we're starting from this deficit space. Okay, without more of that, if you will, we will move on. And I want to introduce you to a very, very special guest. And I want to make sure we get the name right, but I do want to let you know we call her Dr. Cad, but it's really Dr. Kadrea. Uh, La Adwani. I want to make sure I get that right. I don't know if I got it right, but that is the the full name. And Dr. Kat is from Turkey originally, and she has her BS in elementary mathematics education with a minor in science education from the Middle East Technical University. She taught in public and private school settings in Turkey before pursuing a graduate degree in the area of multicultural education at Purdue University, Indiana. She also taught teacher education courses there, working with pre-service teachers around understanding multicultural education. In terms of uh, her research, she's also been involved in research projects that focus on developing multicultural education curricula for culturally and linguistically diverse students and the role of cross-cultural experience preparing pre-service teachers in multicultural classrooms. Her dissertation was a comprehensive comparative case study with a focus on developing multicultural curricula in Islamic schools in the U.S. by pilling the roles of race, class, gender, nationality, and language. She currently works for the New Mexico Public Education Department, where she builds capacity around multicultural education and cultural linguistic responsive pedagogy by collaborating with educators all throughout New Mexico to transform school environments into learning environments that develop and sustain high expectations for all students. And that's where we connected. Dr. Cat coordinates the variety of districts that we work with throughout New Mexico, providing the professional learning. We've been working together now for three years. Hard to count with COVID, right? But I want to say 
maybe it's four years we've been working together and have uh, reached, you know, reached a lot of districts and a lot of teachers because of our collaboration. And I really appreciate her buying in and, and getting engaged in how we define CLR. So without any more words, I want to welcome Dr. Kat to Outrageous Love, the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Holly. No, thank you. I'm honored for you to be our guest and uh, for you to represent once again for New Mexico Public Education Department. We're doing a series on what I call affectionately educrats. And these are people who work inside the belly of the beast in terms of, you know, trying to bring change um, within the bureaucracy. So where I want to start is just you just talking a little bit about your experience working within the system, if you will, trying to roll out equity and cultural responsiveness. What's your experience been like? So, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me here, Dr. Holly. And as you mentioned, I am working as a multicultural education specialist at the, at the state's educational agency. And before starting everything, just I want to mention that I'm an English learner and uh, I'm coming from a historically marginalized group. And um, so when I look at my CLR work, you know, as an international person, I always carry that passion to make the educational system valuable and familiar to our students, whatever cultural background they are bringing to their classrooms. So for me, the, you know, culturally and linguistic responsive is carrying a very critical role in my personal life as well. I'm Turkish and um, I'm married a Middle Eastern Palestinian man and I carry the, the importance of being culturally and linguistic responsiveness and being situationally appropriate in my personal life before my professional life. I want to give a little bit feedback, you know, regarding my my life. I was born and raised in Turkey. I'm, I'm a product of Turkish national education system. I am the second one from my both parents' side who, you know, who went to college and I was following my sister. She was the first one uh, who made it to college. And I am the middle child of my parents. Being that middle child always, you know, it was an opportunity for me. I was learning everything by myself, you know, independently because my parents were not always having that specific time for me because I was having, you know, other siblings and my mom was busy with them. So I was always by myself to learn to play. And the first time that I noticed the importance of cultural and linguistic responsiveness that when I went to kindergarten, I didn't want to be in kindergarten. And I was running out of the classroom and the school and I was coming back to home mm. because I the system and the schedule of that kindergarten classroom was not appealing to me. <laughs> I was I was used to, you know, set up my schedule by myself to be at the street with my friends, play, and I didn't like. And then after two weeks, 
my mom told me that, okay, I'm not sending you to a kindergarten, but please do not blame me, you know, for this decision. And this is because of you. And I was happy. I didn't go to kindergarten and I didn't feel any any limitations uh, for not doing that. I learned how to read before going into first grade, again, by myself. But the thing is that the system, the, the system that I grown up, it was not responsive to me. Mm. And, and the Turkish education system is based on a high-stakes exam. And I failed a couple times in those high-stakes exams. I didn't go to really good intermediate school and high school because I failed in those uh, assessments. Mm-hmm. And, and there was only one chance for me, waiting for me. It was the university entrance exam that I made it. And I, I worked, I studied hard. And then I catch that last train to to be at the college. And I got my bachelor degree in mathematics um, education. Mm-hmm. And again, being middle child was my privilege again. Uh, my parents didn't interfere a lot in my decision. And they told me, okay, you need to choose whatever you like. And the teaching was my passion. And I saw myself always... Uh, as you know, like, okay, the, the system is not responsive to my learning style, but I don't have lots of options. So I need to be successful. I need to learn how to manage the system. But when I think the CLR, usually it is, you know, where it is attached to culture and the language and the ethnicity and different rings of culture. But the learning styles is always also sounding important for me. Mm-hmm. Because our schools should be responsive to the every kind, all kinds of learning styles so that we can flourish our students. Thank you for telling that your history, because you kind of answered our first question, right? Where did you first sort of notice the cultural responsiveness in terms of your your younger years, as I always say? But let's bring it to as an adult, as someone who was educated in the U.S., when did you recognize for yourself? especially in the context of the United States, all students are not educated equitably. Like, what was your sort of slap-in-the-face moment? For me, it was um, during my graduate degree. So when I came to the U.S. after a kind of trauma, the professional trauma, maybe I'm going to talk about that as well. But I came to, you know, I started my graduate degree at, uh, Purdue University in multicultural education. And then I was thinking that, okay, I got my bachelor degree at an internationally accredited university in Turkey, and I got the English proficiency test to be admitted at the graduate program. But I struggle a lot because I was a kind of most underserved student because I was a non-traditional student. I was married. I was having my first child, uh, and she was at that time she was five five months old. And academically, I was struggling because, okay, I can speak English, but I cannot understand the, you know, the academic language of the graduate degree, the PhD courses and master courses in education that's talking about the story, educational history in the educa- in the United States, and then the all the sociopolitical you know, the topics and issues. So my language was not enough, you know, to understand 
to write those, you know, those papers. So, and also the culture, it was very new to me. I was teaching to my students at Purdue University, teaching an uh, introduction to education. And I didn't have any idea before, you know, how the classroom culture in the U.S., in in higher education is formulated. So lots of issues was happening with my uh, language skills, with my academic background, with the culture, with my personal life. And on top of everything, I was facing difficult times in society as well, because since I carry that religious symbol, mm-hmm. uh, I, I encounter difficult incidents, you know, those incidents just keeping me behind because I was not very welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, classrooms in a different way and also in the society in a different way. So it was the first moment that I got those connections yeah. with the students' experiences mm-hmm. because it was very difficult for me. When you say incidents, are you referring to like racial or prejudice or like anti-religious incidents? Yes, that, those uh, discriminations. That you experienced firsthand? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, even though multicultural education is your passion and you want to get your PhD and your education in that perspective, and then all the discussions are very, you know, interesting and motivating for you reading all those research and uh, the history and, you know, those uh, motivational uh, materials. But then in your personal life, you are getting something different. People, they are approaching you in a different way. You are being called as a terrorist in front of your kids. Mm, Wow. I'm not sure they were, you know, motivating me or not, but it was difficult to handle. You're experiencing the opposite of what you're studying. Yes, that's really important to connect the CLR to other parts of society. So we do not only need CLR-oriented schools and classrooms. When our kids step out of that, their classrooms and schools, they need to you know, they need to feel that responsiveness from other sources as well. Absolutely. It's universal, right? It's something that can be applied in all walks of life, basically. I never, you know, you never shared any of that. So I'm 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 feeling like, wow, we probably had a chance to talk about it though. I didn't know that you had experienced it firsthand like that. And yet you're still you're still fighting the fight. What has kept you persevering within the US school system? given what you've faced personally and professionally? So the thing that kept me was, um, I mean, during those um, difficult years, during my PhD, it was um, my, the hope that I received from my advisor. Mm -hmm. She's the only person that I saw all through in my life that authentically CLR. When I was going through these, you know, uh, challenges and struggles, and usually I'm, I'm that kind of person that shares everything, uh, feeling a little bit shy at that beginning, but then I can, you know, present myself appropriately and I can share my, you know, problems, struggles and challenges. And many people, you know, they say, okay, yes, I understand you. I'm so sorry that you are encountering, but they were not helping me authentically in, you know, to, to survive, to, 
to get the idea of the, how the system works. Mm-hmm. So my advisor, she was a hub. She was uh, bringing that hope for me. She was, you know, saying, okay, Kat, you are encountering, and I know that it is difficult, but you need to focus on this. You are a graduate student and you are successful. If you want to, you know, finish and get your degree, this is the things that you, you need to do. And we will find a way and different ways sometimes to go to those purposes and to finish the pathway so she she was always showing me different uh, opportunities to finish my phd and she was connecting all the you know the assignments and all the requirements to my personal struggles so that my voice can be heard by others as well so she was the only one who for me who became CLR to me, and I will be thankful for her for the rest of my life and always. So for those, you know, for those years, she was the, the person that kept me in my pathway, in my journey. But personally, I, I'm always reminding myself, I came to this country voluntarily. Mm-hmm. This was my choice. So I... You know, I'm always trying to be kind myself. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm encountering struggles, problems, but I'm not overthinking them a lot. But I'm using those examples to be useful for other students, for narratives. So this is my personal uh, passion Mm -hmm. and and, uh, motivation. There, there will be a change, and there must be a change. And uh, and uh, if I can, you know, write about my experiences, or if I can um, make my experiences to be heard by others, then the, 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 it will help us also. And it is guiding my, you know, my work life as well. Well, I think the two takeaways from what you just said was that we need to provide our students authentic support, right? That you were like a lot of people were helping you, but not, but not really. And I think that happens a lot with students today where, where some of the adults in the building think that they're helping, but it's patronizing or it's just superficial. It's not authentic. And so I think that's an important point. And then the second thing is we always need that one person that, I think students can go to who is going to be that authentic help. And I feel bad for situations where that one person is not there because you and I both, you know, we can point to people in our lives who, you know, kind of pulled us through. And my only hope is that at least in every school, there's that one person that kids can go to and they can they can trust and rely on that authentic self. So I think those are two very, very important points. Now, let me ask you this. Let's go to the third question, because this is fascinating. When I first met you, you know, I learned about all your sort of rings of culture. We kind of talked about them. And what the thing I took away was like the, the various intersections that you have in terms of especially being in the United States. And I'm, I'm saying in particular, gender, religion and ethnic. So I wanted to, I'm very curious to your answer, which two of the rings resonate the most with you? 
especially in the context of being uh, in the United States? Yes. Um, when I think about that context of being United States, the cultural rings that I validate and affirm, you know, continuously is the did my immigrant culture. Actually, it was not mentioned in your cultural rings, but for the U.S. context, this is my first, you know, the cultural rings, because as I you know, mentioned, and uh, as I talk about it before, I need to, you know, learn the system, not only the education in every, you know, single system in the life in the U.S. that will help me. Yeah, I'm learning, I learned the education system through my profession, but there are lots of many things. Uh, there are, you know, there are lots of things for me to learn about it uh, in health system, in the justice system, because I don't have anyone for myself, you know, to follow in this country. So for me, that the immigrant culture is the first cultural ring that I validate and affirm because I, you know, it's very common finding me to ask that question. What is that? What does it mean? Can you explain? When I ask those questions, usually people, you know, are providing the definition of the word. But I'm not seeking for that. I know the definition, the dictionary definition of those, you know, terms, but I, I'm seeking for their meaning in the system so that I can understand the system and then I can, you know, um, I can find my way and I can make it to that pathway. So this is the first cultural rings and the second cultural ring is my religion. So I am you know, vetting and reviewing all the happenings in daily life through that religious uh, cultural rings. And um, because I, you know, it is obvious as well uh, with my attire. And when I go outside, also people, they are approaching me with, you know, some um, prejudices or, you know, some pre-talks based on that attire. And, um, you know, the things that I eat, the things that I schedule, you know, for my day, it's based on my my religion. So these are the two cultures that I validate and affirm, you know, um, continuously during the day. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, just tell people, I mean, you know, they can't see us. They can only hear us. I know they probably maybe saw your image on on our sort of promoting the podcast, but just... Just tell folks your religion and, you know, just give them that context so they'll fully understand. For those who, like, literally, this is their first time hearing you. Yes, I am. I am Muslim and I wear hijab. And, you know, that my religious identity is obvious. I, I'm not sure what, how to, you know, just to elaborate my, um, you know, the religious identity. But the people, you know, when I go outside, they can easily notify that mm-hmm. I am. Well, I think. That also gives context to what you said about earlier in terms of being called a terrorist and things like that. Like, you know, people are judging you by your by your appearance there. Now, this would be interesting if we look at it through the immigrant culture lens and learning the system, because part of the situational appropriateness piece is to some extent teaching our students the system so that they can have the skills to navigate. And you're basically saying that has been your experience. And so I'm interested in you giving us a situation where you had to uh, practice global dexterity, if you will, 
or culturally adapt? And did you have success or not? It needs time, you know, and then again, it, it needs that the understanding of the system. So, I mean, to reach that point, I also, yeah, I struggled. And uh, for example, uh, when I was teaching to my students at Purdue, that was the first time I noticed that um, there is a, you know, that each classroom is carrying a culture as well. And that culture is attached to the school culture and the, the institutional culture. And I was not coming from that culture. And I was coming from very uh, collective culture. Sharing is always important. You know, completing each other is always important. And one day when I was teaching, uh, you know, I grabbed a pen from a desk and then immediately one student raised, uh, stood up and told me that, hey, you cannot use my pen. This is my pen. Hmm. And I, you know, it was very shocking time for me because I was teaching and you have your understanding uh, is based on the power relationship between the teacher and the student. And then, you know, um, even though I'm an international student and I'm teaching them, you know, introductory course in education, most of my teaching skills are coming from uh, my uh, teacher education happened in Turkey. So I noticed that actually he was right. I mean, uh, because he's coming from individual culture and I'm coming from collective culture. And I uh, apologized immediately and I said, I'm sorry. I gave that explanation, that information saying that, hey, I'm coming from this type of culture and it's very common for me to pick up the pen or pencil from, you know, from friends. So I apologize. But again, it took time for me to, you know, to treat myself appropriately in different, um, in a different culture. Do you think as a professor, you have to really mirror culture of like the university versus saying when your students come to your class, you sort of telling them like, I know that this is the norm, but we're going to be a community of sharing, of collectivism. Did you ever have an opportunity to kind of go that direction? So, and you tell them like, I may walk by and pick up your pencil during the course of the semester. Yes. Providing that uh, explanation and extra information, I, I, I think, help us to reach out that, you know, like that fun, uh, funny moment saying that, hey, we can, we can, let me give that uh, explanation, but this is, you know, this, we will have a different culture in our classroom. And if I do this, this is because of my culture. And don't, you know, don't take it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, if you can treat yourself appropriately, then you are increasing that chance, you know, to have dialogue with others. And then you can have those the contracts, other contracts for your communications based on those explanations and based on those, you know, extra information. So we did that. I mean, at the end of that classroom, I mentioned that, hey, if I don't bring my, you know, my my pencil uh, case or, you know, my pen, uh, pen and pencils with me, then it's very common that I may 
grab your uh, pencil or your pen, and then I will be leaving the classroom with that pen. So don't take it in a serious way. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and now, you know, those are kind of like the, the nuance. I, I looked at it as like a, that's a very nuanced thing there. So that's really good to think about. Um, cause I was just thinking about like all the times that I've borrowed a pencil and never, it never returned it. And I would have a totally different response, but, um, I understand. Let's go to the last question, which is what, what inspires you, what moves you and grooves you out of the world of art? or through family, um, that what I call, you know, when you're looking for that VAP, that VAB lift or that CLR lift, where do you go for inspiration? Um, I mean, I, I'm sure that everybody who's listening to us is familiar with outrageous love. Yes. But the thing that is that outrageous love, I'm showing that outrageous love first for myself. You know, I need to love myself before being responsive to others. So I'm taking the outrageous love for me first. And then I'm doing my, the motivational and I'm caring about my self-compassion as well. So yes, I carry significant, important uh, experiences for this work, but I may lose my passion easily. So in order to keep that passion fresh and alive, I always be kind to myself. I do not, I do not overthink problems and, uh, you know, things happening in the society more than enough. I, you know, see them as a problem and I look for solutions. I think this is the, you know, this is the important thing that I strategize for myself, for my life in the U.S. So being kind to myself and thinking that we are sharing common humanity. And then, uh, and being thoughtful about others, being mindful about others. This is my passion. I mean, keeping my passion alive and fresh. So these are, these things are feeding me, mm-hmm. but other things also my kids. So let's think about that. I didn't get my education and my professional degree in multicultural education, but my kids are being raised. In a, uh, in a home culture with different languages. Mm-hmm. So I speak Turkish to my kids and my husband speak Arabic to my kids and they hear English, you know, from their friends. So they are around of three different cultures. So I need to be validating and affirming as a, as a parent as well for them. Because um, even, you know, when I recall my my childhood experiences, my childhood, I cannot compare those experiences to my kids because the, my kids are having totally different settings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm working for them as well. Just, you know, improving myself, not only for an educator, for a parent too. I totally understand what everything that you just said, especially, I mean, I think your children are certainly going to be multicultural, right? Like in the real in the real sense of the word because of all the things they're being exposed to and how they're growing up. So that I think that's positive just in terms of the next generation. That's really good. I want to go back though to my first question. Now that, you know, we have a fuller context, 
because you kind of went right to the first question, which is your younger years and talked about your experiences starting in kindergarten, which again was was very compelling. And I love your answer, by the way, self-care, outrageous love to yourself and then your and then your family. I want to go back to, though, your experience currently in public education department in Mexico. And just, you know, my thing with the audience has been that New Mexico has been very, as a state, has been, for the most part, very supportive, particularly of CLR. And but that's me speaking from the outside. I just wanted to hear and I'm not trying to get you fired or anything like that. But I I just want to I just wanted to get your perspective from the inside. Are you feeling good about the work that you're doing and the system allowing you to do it? Yes. I, I think I'm feeling good. And the thing is that, as you mentioned, one hope will be enough to be, you know, for our students and to you know, to make them successful, not only academically, but also in their personal life. So I am working for that. So we are bringing CLR uh, trainings to our educators. And we, you know, we are approaching to high numbers of teachers and participants. Mm -hmm. But the thing for me, the, the most important thing is that, you know, that hope, you know, if we can get one teacher that will be CLR, authentically CLR to our students, then I can, you know, relate my experiences and I can feel good about, you know, that, about the work that I do and also, you know, about the results and about the outcomes. So this is the thing uh, for me that is important, just, you know, carrying that hope. I, if I could play a role in the recognition of our students, in our all students, uh, specific our cultural and linguistically diverse students in our state, in New Mexico, then I will feel really good about that, and I will be happy. Well, that's a that's a perfect way to end right there. You're doing you're doing great work. You know, you stepped in and uh, kind of started doing it what my what uh, Myra had been doing, and so I just want to say thank you for your work. I enjoy the collaboration, the partnership that we have, and we're gonna we're gonna continue to try to you know, make impact. And uh, so thank you. And I, I really appreciate you. Please know that. From the first moment I was in your training, I really liked the approach that you carry, the stress that you carry for the system. So we need to teach our students how to be successful in the system. And we need, you know, we need their um accomplishments and achievements because they will be changing the system and that the system will be more functioning um, in future. So I'm so I'm so glad that we met together and yes. we I am carrying very aligning CLR perspective with you. Yes. And hoping that we will, you know, we will carry that perspectives to uh, to our educators. Yes. Very, very well, thank you so much. Wow, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm going to try it one more time. Dr. Kadrea L. Adwani. All right. I just wanted to say I wanted to get it right time. You know, names are so important. Um, so thank you so much. I really love, I mean, you, you could feel the complexity, right, in her cultural dynamics 
And uh, some of the things that she shared around her experiencing anti-Islam or anti-Muslim sentiments here in our country by being called a terrorist and such is really horrible and hard to hear from somebody firsthand, you know, versus like seeing it on television or a movie or something. So um, I really appreciate you uh, sharing and being vulnerable and with that. Um, We've got a long way to go, folks. But I really I really love the answer around authenticity when when needing to be supported. Uh, and I talked about it when we were in the interview, but I just wanted to reiterate that all help ain't good help for our students. And a lot of times I think as adults, we may be thinking we're doing the right things for students, but is it really what they need? And I think her point about uh, the advisor who was authentic with her is so important. It's something that's really understated because I think that sometimes we think that if we're just helping by listening to students or whatever it is, we're not saying that any of that is wrong or bad, but is that really what our students need? And I think authenticity speaks to giving our students what they need, having that one person on campus who can talk to a student a certain type of way or be able to understand a student a certain type of way where they feel like they're being responded to, where they feel like they've been, they're being connected with. And I think we've all, we all can speak to that experience of somebody really authentically supporting us versus just being supported. And again, not to say just being supported is a bad thing, but the, the level, when it comes with that authentic level, it makes a big difference. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cad, for uh, complexifying uh, the topic for it and enriching us with your cultural, with your cultural self. Okay, folks, we are wrapping this up. We are going to continue the series. Uh, Next month, we're going to bring you another educrat from inside the belly of the beast for them to share their experience with us. We're looking so forward to it. We're also coming up on our second anniversary. So the next month will be uh, the end of the second season. And we'll start uh, April with the personal episode. I know you look forward to that as we start our, our new season. But I'll keep all that a secret for now. I just want to say thank you to my great editing team who um, making it making us sound better and better each time. Thank you for downloading, listening in. And uh, I want to dedicate this episode just, you know, to all our Muslim brothers and sisters, you know, especially in education who have had to withstand, you know, hate And uh, we want to just let them know that support and love, and that goes for our students as well, as we all continue to uh, not only fight, but also be better. So that's who I'm dedicating the episode to. With that said, stay safe and stay fabulous. See you next month.